Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, the latest developments reported at the 44th Annual San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and funding from Macrogenics. And I really want to thank them for their collaborative support of this program. And um, we do have many of you on the call today. There are over 275 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States. You come from both um, urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also happen to have a number of people from uh, different parts of the world, actually. It's a bit of a global call. Um, we have participants from Australia, Canada, China, India, Israel, Kenya, South Korea, Nigeria, Singapore, and the United Kingdom. So it's really um, a credit to all of you that you're spending this next hour with us. Um, now, before we move on and I, I introduce our first speaker, I first would like to ask all of you just a few questions. And for those of you who are live streaming the call, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to really rating, and they take about two minutes. Um, so, um, And it helps us. We are now planning a lot of our programs for 2022, the next year, and your feedback really is in, very valuable to us to know, um, uh, to understand what you know when you come into these programs. So I'm going to start with the first question. <clears throat> On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the new research findings presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium for early stage breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand breast cancer-specific treatments for younger and older people living with breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of genomics and genetics in relation to breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, for those of you live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate them. And just two questions left. I understand how to prevent and manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain of breast cancer treatments. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the last question is, I understand the role of clinical trials for the treatment of breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in um, these questions. It really helps us as we plan all of our programs for 2022. And now, um, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Metro. Dr. Metro is Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Oncology, UC San Antonio Comprehensive Breast Health and Breast Health Team. And Dr. Metro will be addressing breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, Delta, and Omicron. Breast cancer-specific treatment updates for on early stage breast cancer reported at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium and updates from San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium on younger and older people living with breast cancer. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Maitro. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, very exciting after last week's San Antonio conference. Uh, so I'm looking forward to presenting some of the information that we learned last week. Uh, before we get into the San Antonio information, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, particularly with the emergence of these new variants, the Delta and Omicron variants. When COVID-19 first emerged as a global pandemic in early 2020, uh, we as oncologists were forced to adapt the way that we typically treat breast cancer uh, early on in order to preserve PPE or personal protective equipment. Many non-emergent surgeries like some breast surgeries were canceled or postponed. Um, so breast surgeries were still done, but we ended up giving many patients medication before, we, before surgery when 
sometimes we, in, previously we may have wanted to give them, uh, have the surgery first. So we give what's called neoadjuvant therapy a little bit more often. Um, particularly with hormone positive breast cancer, we started endocrine therapy for a few months until the first surge eased and hospitals that were no longer filled with COVID patients were able to open their, their operating rooms. Uh, but the choice was harder for patients who also needed chemotherapy. Was it safer to use a scarce hospital resource to perform surgery, or was it safer to give them chemotherapy and potentially make them immunosuppressed during the peak of the pandemic? So those were uh, decisions that we had to make with our patients and, and as, a, as a clinical team. Clinical trial operations also had to be adjusted or modified. Um, in a, from a positive perspective, more flexibility was given to patients to have labs or imaging performed locally rather than having to travel uh, potentially farther distances into a hospital or to an academic center. Some trials paused enrollment temporarily, um, but there was also a movement to broaden eligibility criteria to allow more patients onto clinical trials. Um, so that's also uh, hopefully one of the more positive lasting effects of the pandemic. Uh, we've pretty much returned to normal operations now, um, at least here in the United States and California, um, with respect to timing of surgeries and, and when we start systemic therapy, but we are still very much impacted by the ongoing pandemic. Um, we are performing telemedicine visits still, um, so most of our patients do get seen in, in the office, but we still offer telemedicine visits. Uh, many patients with breast cancer are on some kind of medication like chemo or other targeted therapy that can cause immunosuppression. So we regularly have to make considerations to make sure that we're keeping patients safe from the virus. I encourage all of my patients to get vaccinated and anyone who I am planning to start chemotherapy or some other immunosuppressive medication, I strongly recommend that they and everyone in their household who is eligible get vaccinated and get the booster if they are uh, if that's also available to them. We know that patients with any disease, not just cancer, uh, who are immunocompromised have some of the worst outcomes from COVID. They're much more likely to get serious COVID, to end up hospitalized or even dying from the infection. And so, um, so getting the vaccine is really the safest way to uh, ensure that, that even if someone does get infected, that, that it won't be such a severe illness. Um, with the newer variants, Delta and Omicron, getting vaccinated is even more crucial, uh, and there is evidence that the booster from Pfizer and Moderna can provide protection against the newer Omicron variant. Uh, the vaccine is critical, but it has also caused some confusion and some difficulties in interpreting imaging uh, in patients after they get the vaccine. So, for example, vaccines can cause swelling of the lymph nodes uh, in the armpit, particularly on the side uh, where the vaccine was administered. So over the last year, we've had uh, instances where some women who had a, uh, with a recently diagnosed breast cancer were found to have an enlarged lymph node in their armpit, and we weren't sure if it was from cancer or from the vaccine. And so some women did have to go through a lymph node biopsy to determine that it was not related to her cancer. Um, so some women are being asked to come back in three to six months for follow-up imaging. Um, so one piece of advice, if you still have yet to get the vaccine or booster, is to try to get it in the arm of your non-affected breast side because uh, it's less likely to cause confusion. And then another impact of the pandemic in breast cancer is that many women were forced to delay their screening mammograms. Um, for several months, some places were not even performing them. And so that has led to the detection of some breast cancers at a slightly later stage than they may have been detected if screening mammograms were done on time. Um, we're also seeing this with other cancers that are detected but with screening tests, such as colon cancer. Um, but it still remains to be seen how these delays may impact long-term outcomes for our patients who have been diagnosed in the last two years. So now I'm going to turn to um, some updates on from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Uh, last week's conference presented some exciting new data. Uh, one of my colleagues will discuss uh, some of the updates in advanced breast cancer. Um, and I'll give a brief overview of some of the updates that we heard uh, for early stage breast cancer. For, uh, I'm going to divide it into subtypes of breast cancer, so ER uh, hormone positive, triple negative, um, and, and then some general information. Um, so for hormone positive, there were three main themes within this category of, of early stage breast cancer. 
um, what is what is the optimal um, optimal endocrine therapy for premenopausal women. So we got updated results from the soft and text trials. Um, those were studies that looked that evaluate that compared tamoxifen with tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor plus ovarian suppression. So a bit more of a um, aggressive uh, ovarian suppression strategy. And those the, the updated results confirmed the benefit of ovarian suppression with an aromatase inhibitor over tamoxifen alone particularly for higher-risk patients, uh, for example, those who needed chemotherapy, uh, those who had um, positive lymph nodes or um, high-risk genomic scores. Um, the results of the R-Expander trial um, also continues to cause some uncertainty for many oncologists and patients, particularly in the premenopausal uh, group. So the R-Expander trial looked at the benefit of chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy, versus endocrine therapy alone among women who have, um, among patients who have one to three positive lymph nodes and an oncotype recurrence score of 25 or less. Uh, so the, the data was clear among postmenopausal women that there really is no benefit to chemotherapy for patients with oncotype scores of 25 or less. But the benefit of chemotherapy was seen among premenopausal women regardless of their oncotype score. Um, but what's What's unclear to us is uh, because chemotherapy in many cases causes ovarian suppression, as many of you who may have gone through chemotherapy uh, may have experienced, it can stop your periods um, either permanently or temporarily. Um, so we know that it's therapeutic in hormone-positive breast cancer, but what we don't know is, is the benefit of chemotherapy that was seen in this clinical trial, a toxic effect of chemotherapy on breast cancer cells, or was it due to the indirect effect of chemotherapy on the ovaries, which may lead to a menopausal state? Um, there really isn't yet a clear answer to this question. And so as it stands today, the decision to use chemotherapy among premenopausal women with low-risk oncotype scores still has to be a sort of a shared decision and must be discussed um, on an individual case-by-case -case basis with your treating uh, oncologist. And we know for women with high-risk hormone-positive breast cancer, that there's a long-term risk of recurrence, um, so 10, 15, 20-plus years, despite the use of chemotherapy and endocrine therapy. And last year, the Monarch E trial demonstrated that adding a bemcyclib for two years to endocrine therapy can reduce the risk of recurrence in high-risk patients. So these are patients with four or more positive lymph nodes, or um, if they had uh, fewer positive lymph nodes, they had a high-grade or other high-risk feature. A different trial called the PALACE trial used a similar drug, um, palbociclib, but that was a negative study and didn't show a benefit, and we got the final results of that trial. Um, we're not certain why one study was positive and one was negative. There are thoughts about the level of risk of each study's population. In the PALACE trial, uh, they had more lower-risk patients, so fewer positive lymph nodes. Um, the percent of patients who completed the study was different, and then abemocyclib is given continuously, and palbociclib is given three weeks on, one week off, and so we don't know if the, that difference in administration plays a role as well. But the bottom line is that we do still have abemocyclib in our arsenal for high-risk patients with hormone-positive breast cancer. Um, for triple-negative breast cancer, the main updates came from the Keynote 522 trial, that evaluated the addition of immunotherapy, um, a medicine called pembrolizumab, to chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, um, so before surgery. And the updated results from that study confirmed that adding pembrolizumab to chemotherapy increase, increases the rate of complete response and decreases the risk of recurrence. Um, there is ongoing debate about how to approach patients who have a complete response versus don't. And when I say complete response, what I mean is when you go for surgery after getting chemo, there's no evidence of cancer left in the breast. It's a medicine that you had eradicated the cancer. So if you don't have that, um, there are a couple of medication options that have been studied. So um, capecitabine for triple negative breast cancer, laparib is an option for BRCA mutation carriers, and then pembrolizumab can be continued after surgery. And so we don't know yet exactly how to sort of schedule those medicines, whether to combine them for patients who 
did not have a PCR and whether any of that is necessary at all for people who do. So still some unanswered questions. And then for um, general updates, we learned that using a medicine called metformin, which is typically used to treat diabetes, um, does not improve outcomes for breast cancer. And we learned that there are unfortunately some racial disparities in post-operative complications from breast surgery. So there, um, we saw a presentation that shows that there's a greater risk of lymphedema among black and Hispanic patients as compared to white patients. Um, so the, those studies are ongoing to, to sort of get to the bottom of what might be contributing to that. And then finally, um, updates on younger and older people. The, um, the primary updates for younger people with breast cancer relate to the treatment of premenopausal women that I, that I just mentioned. Um, we did have some additional data showing that women over the age of 55 with low-risk hormone-positive breast cancer may safely omit radiation. Um, but this is not necessarily the case with omitting sentinel lymph node biopsy um, among women over the age of 70. Um, so when uh, surgery, uh, the, the data is still a little bit conflicting as to whether or not we need that sentinel node biopsy in women over 70. But we do know that it's safe to omit radiation for low-risk patients as long as they're taking hormone therapy. And so with that, I will stop and pass it on to my colleague for um, updates on the advanced studies setting. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Major. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful way to start off the program. A lot of it, good information for everybody to start with, and um, so really outstanding. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein, and Dr. Hussein is the lead physician, breast medical oncology, MD Anderson at Cooper Cancer Center. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing um, discussion of how the genomics and genetics of breast cancer inform treatment decisions from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, new updates on the treatment of metastatic breast cancer from the conference, preventing and managing treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19, Delta, and Omicron. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussain. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. Um, first, I would like to speak a little bit about uh, genomics and genetics and some of the new and exciting information regarding that that was presented in the conference. So breast cancer is a disease with the first targeted therapies that um, we, uh, we have something called a companion diagnostic test for. Uh, that usually assesses the estrogen, progesterone, and the HER2 positivity. And now we have numerous receptor-directed therapies that have dramatically changed the natural history of uh, treatment of breast cancer. Uh, now we know that cancers are unique as the individual patients that were afflicted by these diseases and this is where precision oncology comes in, where we try to treat every patient's cancer in a tailored fashion. So we have those tests called the NGS test or the next generation sequencing, which can sequence billions of base pairs of DNA in a time and cost-effective manner. And those can usually detect rare mutant DNA populations that gives us the chance to capture genomic regions of interest. So germline uh, testing, um, there are available panels for testing now, and it is a standard of care for some types of breast cancer. And uh, some of these genes, if identified, they have uh, what we call a therapeutic action ability. So an example of that is the use of a group of drugs called the PARP inhibitors in patients who carry the BRCA mutations. Now we also have something called liquid biopsies, which uh, is a test. It's a blood test, which has the ability to detect the cell-free DNA, which refers to the small DNA fragments shed by all cells into the circulation, or the circulating DNA, which refers to the DNA shed specifically by the tumor cells in one circulation. So focusing on the hormone receptor breast cancer category, since it is the most common subtype, uh, in the conference, they reviewed that uh, ER-positive breast cancer has wide genomic variabilities between tumors and that the um, intrinsic subtype, which is defined by the degree of likeness to the gene expression types, leading to the generation of different 
phenotype of hormone receptor positive cancers that behave and respond to treatments in a different way. So the, that is uh, mainly the luminal A and luminal B subtypes. We also learned that the estrogenic environment affecting the whole process of gene transcription, and um, they talked about some mutations like uh, TP53 that has a strong prognostic significance above some of the molecular profiling tests. And currently, there's a lot of work that is being done in order to clarify the different pathways of endocrine resistance, the resistance of a patient to the hormonal therapy that could develop and um, during the course of treatment. And that would help us hopefully to identify new targets and identify the tumors that carry the hot immune features. Uh, many presentations also discussed the use of circulating DNA in the follow-up of metastatic disease to monitor the response to treatment and to detect targets, like the use of those tests to detect a mutation called ESR1 during treatment, which normally is linked to resistance to the group of uh, hormonal therapies called uh, aromatase inhibitors, and usually is uh, signifying that we need to switch therapy to a different line of treatment like the STIRDs or the selective estrogen receptor down regulators. So overall, using the circulating DNA technology as a prognostic marker and to drive treatment change, I think that was a very exciting um, uh, something that was reviewed in the conference. So moving on to the metastatic or the advanced setting of breast cancer, um, as my colleague mentioned, we're, we're going to divide them by subtype. So I'd like to start with the triple negative um, update first. Uh, they presented an update from the Keynote 355 clinical trial, which previously showed that the combination of different types of chemotherapy in addition to an immunotherapy agent called pembrolizumab resulted in a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in two endpoints. One of them is called progression-free survival, which is the length of time that the patient with metastatic disease gets to live uh, before the tumor progresses or gets worse, and the overall survival, so the overall survival of the patient in general. Um, so that combination showed uh, superiority compared to chemotherapy alone. Now, in the conference, they uh, presented data that tried to see what is the correct cutoff for something called CPS, or the Combined Positive Score, uh, which is a test used to uh, check the pdl one positivity, or it's, it's basically a, a blood test that we do in order to, uh, I'm sorry, it's a test on the tumor itself um, that we do to detect how sensitive the tumor could be to immunotherapy. And so they used different um, cutoffs. They divided patients into a CPS less than 1, 1 to 9, 10 to 19, and more than or equal to 20. And they concluded that the benefit was seen if you scored more than or equal to 10 in that test, showing us that this combination um, is really a new standard of care treatment regimen for our locally recurrent, unresectable, or metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients who express this PDL1 positivity by a score of more than or equal to 10. And they presented also an update on the safety profile, which was consistent with the known profiles of each regimen included um, in the safety concerns from previously. Uh, they reviewed another clinical trial called the Tropion Pantumor 01 uh, study which is a phase one, so it's an early phase clinical trial that showed that in heavily pretreated patients with triple negative breast cancer, the use of uh, an antibody drug conjugate, which is a new class of medication that is identifying a surface target on the surface of the cancer cell, developing an antibody to that target and linking it to a chemotherapy where the chemotherapy gets released inside the cells, so a very exciting molecule um, design that is seen in multiple different types of cancers. So when they used this antibody drug conjugate called uh, DATO-DXD, it showed highly encouraging and durable efficacy. They were able to see a response in more than 34% of the patients with triple negative breast cancer in the metastatic stage. And regarding the side effects for this molecule, it seems that low-grade nausea and stomatitis or inflammation of the inner lining of the mouth 
were the most frequent, so overall a manageable safety profile. Now moving on to the hormone receptor positive subsets. They uh, presented an update regarding subgroup analysis from the Mona Lisa 2 trial. And this trial previously showed us that there is an improvement in the overall survival of patients when treated with a combination of letrozole and ribocyclic, which is one of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, so they showed really a, a very impressive improvement in the overall survival of patients when compared to treatment with letrozole alone. Um, in the conference, they presented a subgroup analysis update that showed that the survival was seen, survival benefit was seen, regardless the sites of metastatic disease involvement. So whether the patients had bone-only disease or they had involvement of other organs like the liver or lungs, the benefit was seen. And regardless of how many sites of metastatic disease, whether it is less than three or more than or equal to three, and whether the patient previously received chemotherapy or different types of endocrine therapy, there was still a superiority from that combination. So although the CDK4-6 inhibitors have transformed the disease outcome when it comes to metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer, however, developing an acquired resistance is a constant threat, and the available therapeutic options remain limited, really. So even though we have targeted therapeutic agents available like Finitor and alpalosib and others, including chemotherapy, but the estimated benefits in number of months is, is quite modest. And that is why there's a lot of work right now that is being done to clarify exactly the mechanisms of resistance and hopefully develop new protocols to address them better. Um, they presented a very interesting clinical trial called the PADA-1 trial. And this trial looked at the ESR-1 mutation monitoring in the blood. So they looked at the circulating DNA in order to optimize endocrine therapy partner uh, to the CDK4-6 inhibitor. In that trial, it was salbocyclic or Ibrance. And in this trial, they were able to show that upon ESR1 detection, the median progression-free survival or the, the, the length of time that the patients get to live without evidence of disease progression was doubled by switching the combination from an aromatase inhibitor with palbocyclid to fulvestrin with palbocyclid. And they did not show any new significant safety concerns. Um, another one that I would like to discuss is the Emerald uh, clinical trial, which is a phase three clinical trial, looked at using a new molecule called L-acestrin, which is an oral CERD or a oral selective estrogen receptor uh, down regulator versus investigator choice endocrine monotherapy for the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced breast cancer. And that was following progression on prior endocrine therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. In this trial, they were able to show that there is a 30% reduction in the risk of progression from compared to the standard of care and a 45% reduction in the risk of progression uh, compared to standard of care in patients who harbored this mutation, the ESR1 mutation. And they compared LSSTRIN being an oral CERT to the only available CERT right now in the market, which is not oral. It's an injectable form. It's an IM injection called Fulvestrin or Fazlodex. And they were able to see consistent benefit between the two molecules. So overall, this trial is providing a promising, well-tolerated option with a manageable safety profile consistent with other endocrine therapy options that have the potential to become the new standard of care. Uh, we're hoping that by next year, we get to see the overall survival results for this trial. Now, moving on to the third subtype of breast cancer, so the HER2-positive metastatic subset. Um, they presented new data from the key subgroup in the Destiny Breast 03 clinical trial. And that was a phase three clinical trial comparing trastuzumab deroxtecan, which is um, one of the antibody drug conjugates, to another antibody drug conjugate called trastuzumab intensine. And that is in patients with metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer, showing an improvement in progression-free survival across the patient subgroups compared to the intensine or TDM1 
and an objective response rate of almost 80% compared to the 34% with the TDM1 group. And what is interesting about this molecule is it proved to be very efficacious also if the patient, even if the patient has brain metastasis. Uh, so the trastuzumab deroxycan resulted in greater efficacy compared to the TDM1 in patients with brain metastasis with a nice improvement in progression-free survival and a lower rate of progressive disease compared to TDM1. Um, they also noted that the deroxycan treatment was associated with a substantial intracranial response and a reduction in CNS disease. So they showed a 28% rate for patients with intracranial disease who were able to achieve a complete response compared to a very low number previously on the TDM1, about 2.8%. Um, what is reassuring about this presentation is they reviewed that no high-grade pneumonitis or interstitial lung disease is associated with the use of the drug, so no grade 4 or grade 5, which was a major concern on the earlier phase trial studying the same molecule. And otherwise, they were not able to see any safety profile concerns. And the majority of the patients on this trial were um, of Asian background, but they compared to the Asian and the non-Asian patient groups, and uh, the benefits seem to be very consistent in either group. The last thing I would like to quickly touch on are some interesting uh, updates about symptom management. So they reviewed the potential use of minimal risk modalities like acupuncture in the management of musculoskeletal pain, hot flashes, insomnia, and even in addressing um, chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy with some potentially significant benefits. And also saw data um, reviewing the potential benefit of botanical cannabis as a useful adjunct to standard of care treatment in alleviating the side effects of cancer or treatment-related side effects. And although the preclinical findings are promising, but there's no convincing evidence as of yet in the medical literature supporting an anti-tumor activity of cannabis or cannabinoids in general. Uh, with that, I want to thank you for listening, and back to you, Dr. Mesner. Thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was an outstanding presentation and really um, covered a lot of important topics, which I know our participants are really eager to hear about, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. Really outstanding. Thank you. And our next speaker is um, Candice Mayner, and Dr. Mayner is breast, medical, is breast cancer medical oncologist, Georgetown University Medical Center, MedStar Health Network. And Dr. Maynard will be addressing clinical trial updates from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium on quality of life concerns of people living with cancer, living with breast cancer, how research increases your treatment options for breast cancer, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Maynard. Uh, thank you, Dr. Mesner, and um, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this forum today. Um, I'll start by discussing some of the clinical trial updates from San Antonio on quality of life concerns of people living with cancer. And I think one particularly interesting presentation that was in one of our general sessions uh, was the quality of life uh, result uh, data from the Olympia Clinical Trial. Um, so the Olympia Clinical Trial was a phase three clinical trial uh, for the um, adjuvant use of Olaparib versus placebo in patients with high-risk breast cancer who also had um, mutations in either BRCA1 or BRCA2. Um, so in the study, patients who had completed their initial chemotherapy, either in the neoadjuvant setting or before surgery setting, or chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting or the after-surgery setting, and then who went on to receive their definitive local treatment, and by that I mean their definitive surgery and or radiation. They were then um, assigned to take either a laparib or placebo uh, for one year. And as was previously reported, the addition of a laparib for one year um, in this patient population uh, showed an improvement in invasive disease-free survival. Um, and 
during this presentation at San Antonio, uh, the research team sought to investigate or understand if olaparib would exacerbate um, symptoms that patients may already be experiencing or recovering from from the chemotherapy they received and added in adjuvant or adjuvant setting. And in particular, um, they were focused on if patients treated with olaparib would have greater fatigue at six and 12 months compared to those who received the placebo. So this study uh, reported that um, fatigue was noted to be just slightly greater in patients who took olaparib, but um, this slight increase did not meet sort of the pre-specified um, cutoff for clinical significance. And importantly, there was no differences in fatigue in patients who took olaparib at 18 or 24 months. They also looked at other symptoms that patients may be recovering from after their initial chemotherapy, including, including nausea and vomiting. And they reported that nausea and vomiting were um, slightly higher in patients taking olaparib at 6 and 12 months, but there was improvement by 18 and 24 months, such that there was no difference compared to patients who were taking the placebo. In addition, they looked at other quality of life measures, such as um, physical functioning and emotional functioning, and found no impact of olaparib on, on, on those measures. So I think this study is important um, because oftentimes patients have um, residual toxicities or residual symptoms from their initial cancer therapy. And as we know from um, the data that has been uh, reported at San Antonio and other studies, Patients benefit sometimes from additional treatment or therapies or chemotherapy after their initial chemotherapy and surgery. But sometimes the discussion about if patients can tolerate these additional therapies largely depends on how they tolerated the initial therapy and if there's any um, symptoms that remain. So I think this study uh, uh, was nice in that it um, uh, reported um, the sort of quality of life um, measures uh, of patients and didn't show a very um, significant impact on those measures. And with this, this is actually a good segue into talking about how research can increase your treatment options for breast cancer. Because of the efficacy data that shows that there was an improvement in invasive disease-free survival, um, this drug is now sitting with our um, regulatory agency um, for approval on the use of women with early-stage breast cancer. So when we think about how research can um, increase treatment options for patients with breast cancer, I sort of think of sort of research um, or clinical trial uh, available or clinical trial options in sort of three categories: ones that are um, interventional, ones that mostly focus on symptom. Um, management and symptom mitigation, and then also trials that focus on more sort of data gathering so that they can inform future clinical trials. Um, looking more specifically at interventional trials, these are trials in which patients are often able to um, receive novel agents um, with the sole purpose of evaluating the efficacy or if these drugs can improve outcomes in patients um, with breast cancer. I think a good example of this in the breast cancer setting is looking at the use of um, immunotherapy in women with um, breast cancer. And as my colleagues have already um, talked about the data from these trials, namely the Keynote 522 trial, which was the trial for patients with early-stage breast cancer, which showed that the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy in those patients improved outcomes as it related to pathologic concrete response and improvement in event-free survival. In addition, as also previously discussed with the Keynote 355 study in patients with advanced breast cancer, this study confirmed the benefit of adding immunotherapy to patients with advanced um, triple negative breast cancer um, in whose tumors were pdl one positive, as measured by the CPS, um, as it showed increased or improvement in progression-free survival um, and overall survival. Now, looking sort of at trial options or trials that were highlighted or presented at San Antonio as it related to symptom improvement or symptom management or mitigation, 
Um, as patients know, chemotherapy comes with toxicity and side effects, and some of those can be um, nausea and vomiting diarrhea, for instance, or um, some um, other ones including cardiac toxicity. And so one of the posters presented at San Antonio was a study called the HALT-D study, which was looking at using a repurposed drug, and by that I mean a drug that is used in another um, disease setting, and for this study, using it in patients who are receiving chemotherapy um, for, their, uh, for their breast cancer, so using this repurposed drug to see if it had an effect on decreasing um, diarrhea in patients who are receiving chemotherapy with agents that weren't known to cause an increased risk of diarrhea. Um, and in that poster presentation, they revealed that within the cycle, the patients who were on this repurposed drug um, had a decrease in sort of the maximum number of diarrheal episodes they had um, in, that, um, in that cycle. Um, so another sort of category of clinical trial options that are available for patients are ones which may sort of gather more information that may inform other clinical trials. And these can be in the form of patients enrolling in clinical trials where tumor tissue is collected to look at um, the genetic makeup of those tumors or other cells that sort of make up the tumor environment and how those other cells um, may affect um, the tumor and, and cancer care. In addition, we heard also sort of data at San Antonio, which um, my colleague Dr. Matro presented, about some of the health disparities in breast cancer, particularly um, data that was presented that um, black women and Hispanic women may have uh, or do have um, uh, increased risk of um, lymphedema in those that undergo axillary lymph node dissection and radiation. And from these trials, we can gather that information and delve further to figure out why so that other trials and therapies can be um, designed um, in the future to help mitigate or decrease this risk. And I think um, because clinical trials are a great opportunity um, on both ends, both for the patients and those who design the trial to gather information to try and improve outcomes in breast cancer, um, I think using telemedicine here has been um, one positive thing, if we can say that, that's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, and particularly before um, late summer when the sort of laws and rules changed for um, how available telehealth appointments were, it was much easier for patients to maybe have an initial either second opinion appointment or an initial appointment to see if they would qualify or be eligible for a clinical trial. Um, and I think with that, um, you know, hopefully telemedicine will continue to have its space in our um, sort of care um, course. And um, I think when patients are in telemedicine appointments or getting prepared for their telemedicine appointments, it's um, important, I think, still to have a person um, with you at that appointment. Either most telehealth platforms allow another patient to sort of be in on the appointment so that person can see the patient and the physician um, so that that support person can still help in terms of um, advocating for the patient because oftentimes at the first appointment um, it can be quite overwhelming to get all the information that is presented and interpreted and decide what's best um, for the patient and um, their care. Also, when preparing for these telehealth appointments, it's, of course, great to have a list of questions prepared. And these questions can be things that are, you know, very important to patients. I know my patients that I see often ask, you know, how will the treatment affect me, myself? How will it affect my ability to care for my family, my children? How will it affect my ability to continue to work or not? Um, what are the side effects we anticipate from the therapy? What are the you know, most likely side effects versus the rare side effects? Um, and then are there any other options for therapy? And then also it's a good question to sort of have on the list so that if there's any clinical trials available and it's not at the um, sort of institution that you're having the telehealth appointment at, if they know of any um, clinical trials that are available maybe in the
area. Um, and so with that, I can hand this back over to Dr. Um, Mithner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Maynard. That was really outstanding and really covered a lot of such important um, topics that are so um, really so important to people's lives and um, and really um, explaining them in, in great detail. I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, before we go into the Q&A and before I ask you a few more questions, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, just so you all know this is a resource. Um, I should say that after today's program, you'll all be receiving a SurveyMonkey, which will um, allow you to probably tomorrow you'll get the Survey Monkey and it will allow you to comment on the program today. Um, but I did want to um, actually uh, get a, give you an idea of some of the services you can access for free from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, we've been around for about 78 years, um, and um, we have about and it, the services are primarily provided by um, oncology social workers. So it means you can call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673, and the persons answering that phone are trained master's level oncology social workers. And so what can they do for you? So they can do a, a lot of things for you, and I'm going to try to just summarize them briefly for you. Um, they, first of all, when you call, a lot of people call with a question or concern, so we'll definitely will address that. Um, and then um, we'll let you know all the different services we offer. We do offer practical and financial assistance, and we do have a co-payment foundation. And that's really important right now in this world we live in. It's always been important, but finances for many people are a big issue right now. So we have a substantial amount of financial assistance to provide, both from our general cancer care funds and also from our co-payment assistance funds, which help often to pay for um, some of the treatments that you may be receiving. Um, we also offer online support groups. So those of you who might like um, an online support group, these are great for people all over the country. There's not, not a specific time that you have to uh, check in for the online support group. Uh, they run 24 hours a day, and um, they run in different cycles, and we have them for both. We have lots of them for di different types of breast cancer. We also have them for older people, younger people. Um, so we really have a number of different um, of online support groups. Um, we also um, offer um, um, uh, time to screen programs or case management programs in which we help people to connect up with resources. Let's say we don't have a resource you need. Um, our staff will virtually take you to a resource that they think will work for you. Let's say it's around food insecurity or a need that you have in your particular community that you may, or either be in your community or or regionally or nationally, um, and they will go with you, and they won't just give you a list of places to call. They will call them with you um, together, and, you'll, and they'll stay with you until they find the resource you need. Because there have been issues around screening, we do have a special program around time to screen so people can get more information about screening and feel more comfortable getting screened as well. I think that's come up during our call today. Um, and um, we also offer... Um, um, community programs that are national in scope. We call them coping circles, and they're a chance. Um, on a, they do a lot of different types of topics. Um, many people find them very helpful. They tend to be small groups um, led by um, social workers in which people can talk to each other, and um, um, they're, um, they're online. And then also, and we do offer a lot of these workshops, about 75 of these workshops per year on different types of topics, many different types of topics. You'll all be getting information about those topics and the things that we have coming up. Um, we have programs planned up until, well, for next year, actually, we're planning them. Um, and um, we also have a number of publications that we offer as well. So with that being said, before we move on to the Q&A, I just have a few questions to ask you before we move right into the questions. So get your questions ready, and um, we're going to just take a few more questions now. Um, and take about two minutes, and then we'll move right into the Q&A. Um, and some of you can post your questions online. Our operators will tell you about that at the end of this. So as a result, and this is for people who are live streaming the program, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the new research findings presented at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium for early stage breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, 
I have greater confidence in my knowledge of breast cancer-specific treatments for younger and older people living with breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of genomics and genetics in relation to breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to communicate with and work with the healthcare team to learn team to utilize their tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain of breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials as a treatment option for breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these uh, questions. It really helps us to see what you knew coming into the program and now what you've learned um, during the program and if the program has been helpful to you. That will help us as we plan programs for 2022. And now we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. For those of you on the web, may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, to ask a question, you may press star, then one. And we have a question in front of our online participants. This um, is Dr. Metro. Should DPD deficiency testing be done before using Zoloter or capsidabine? So we don't do that routinely. Uh, the incidence of having that deficiency is so low, in at least in the American population, that we don't typically screen for it. Um, if patients have worse than expected side effects, uh, like very low blood counts or really severe diarrhea or mouth sores, then we definitely would consider testing. Excellent. Thank you. And um, I have a question from one of our um, participants. Um, let's see. Um, and this would be a question um, for um, uh, for Dr. Maynard. Um, if a person already um, has lymphedema, should blood pressure and venipuncture be voided in the affected arm? That's something we debate often, I think, in clinic. So typically, I think in the sort of acute um, time period from surgery, we do avoid it. But in some of the patients who just had like a sentinel lymph node biopsy and it's been several years from there, then um, we can use that arm if, if need be. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, a question for um, uh, for Dr. Um, Hussein, on genetics, was there any mention of the ATM gene playing a role in increased breast cancer risk? Um, so there was not something specifically to my mind that was discussed uh, as an update regarding the risk of developing breast cancer um, that came up as new information in this conference, um, in association with, with the ATM gene. Um, I am I'm, I'm not sure if... Um, that addressed the question. Uh, so regarding updates, we don't have any updates, but it's one of the associated genes for sure. Thank you. Um, um, and then a question in front of our registrants. Um, so this is for Dr. Major again. Could you elaborate on the challenges in breast cancer removal or some surgery that means? Um, so um, just to elaborate on... Uh, sorry, sorry what's the on? question? How could we elaborate on the challenges in breast cancer removal? I'm assuming they mean surgery. Um, hard to, I, I don't know exactly what the questioner is, uh, has in mind or is trying to get at, but um, with breast surgery in general, um, uh, we have to decide, is it going to be a mastectomy versus lumpectomy? Uh, if patients are having medication before surgery, versus after surgery, that plays a role, as well as decisions about reconstruction. Um, for example, if you are getting a mastectomy with an implant but also need radiation, that can have implications for 
cosmetic outcome. So ultimately, surgery decision-making should be done with not just the surgeon, but also the medical oncologist and the patient sort of um, in a multidisciplinary fashion. Excellent. And I don't um, know if that answers the question. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, yes. This is Dr. Hussein. I just want to make sure that I fully understood and addressed the prior question. Uh, so for um, the person who asked the ATM mutation, so nothing new came out of the conference, but again, I just want to clarify that this is one of the abnormal genes that we normally test for, and it is known to have to carry a high rate of developing um, breast cancer other, among other types of cancers. I think there's more than 33 to 38% risk of lifetime development of breast cancer with that gene uh, mutation. So would that, per thank you, that's excellent. And would that person then want to screen more careful, go for screening more regularly or is there anything they would do to be proactive? Correct, so it is, it's going to be one of the factors that would be taken into account in addition to, of course, their family history and other risk factors to come up with a more close surveillance plan, uh, but it doesn't carry a certain recommendation for doing uh, prophylactic mastectomy or anything else. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, so probably a last question um, for Dr. Um, um, Metro. Um, are there any updates related to best practices in treating local recurrence of triple negative breast cancer? To my knowledge, there weren't any specific updates related to local triple negative breast recurrence. Um, typically, we we do give chemo for those kinds of recurrences. Um, the the choice of chemotherapy will depend on what um, the patient would have received previously, uh, and if they had a lumpectomy with radiation previously, then um, the general practice is to do uh, a mastectomy although there are some ongoing studies and, and some emerging data that it may be, may be possible to do breast conservation again with more limited radiation, although that's more accepted, I think, in the hormone-positive group of local recurrences. Awesome. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I just want to, and I want to thank our participants for asking really such great questions. This has really been an amazing call, and I I have to say, although we do this program every year, um, there are so many more questions in queue, and I just want to um, address that because um, it's really important. Um, there are many of you who are um, still wanting to get having questions, so I'm going to address that. And I want to again thank our speakers very much and all our participants for asking such great questions. So to the questions, let's move to those right now. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who um, – by thinking of questions you'd like to ask, we, we recommend in all three instances that you go back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best and they know everything about you. So you can see this as a practice trial and then go to your physician and ask them. Um, take the information you learned today and bring it to your healthcare team with your question and, um, and, and ask them that question over and over again until you have an answer that you're, you're satisfied with. That's really very important. Um, the other thing I want to remind all of you is that um, we're living again in again in a bit of complex age of the um, pandemic hasn't quite gone away yet. It seems to um, be um, showing a bit of a surge. So we want you to work with the healthcare team. Be sure to get work with them around being sure that you're um, as fully protected as you can be um, against both um, COVID and its variants. That's really important. Um, and that you work with your healthcare team directly around those issues so that you really are getting the very best of care. That's really very important. We know that the participants on these calls are seeking the best of care. You ask the best questions. And for those of you who didn't get to ask your questions, please take your questions and go back to your treating healthcare team with them. They're excellent questions. We could actually stay on the call probably well, at least another couple of hours with many of the questions you have. So we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and they will um, help you. And as we conclude the call, uh, particularly during this time of year, is for although it may it may or may not be your holiday time of year or new year, nevertheless, um, there is that sense of, of the holiday year, year in different parts of the country, regions, globally as well. Um, 
nevertheless, um, there can be a feeling of a bit feeling a bit more alone sometimes in dealing with um, with your cancer, with um, with breast cancer. And we want you to know that um, although you may feel alone, you are part of a team. Your healthcare team consists of your oncologists and the, all the other physicians who are treating you, the oncology nurses, oncology social workers, financial specialists, all kinds of patient navigators, people who can help you. And you also can contact Cancer Care. Um, and we will give you a number of other organizations that you can contact as well. Um, and um, they are resources for you, and um, it's very important that you have access to them. Um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.